Welcome to the busy Latter-day Saint, where righteous desires and living life come together. Here, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discuss their challenges and successes in studying the scriptures. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. The music for this program is by Marvin Goldstein and used with his permission. Please give this podcast a thumbs up or tap the subscribe button. Your thumbs up and subscriptions increase the show's ratings, thus making it easier for people to find. As most of you know, I've been serving a mission for the Priesthood Family Department. My mission is to speak to as many people as possible about the importance of studying the scriptures and using the Gospel Library to enhance scripture study. Please contact me if you are interested in me speaking at a devotional for your ward or stake, a youth conference, a family home evening, or just one-on-one instruction. To receive updates on the Gospel Library and news about this podcast, be sure to add your email to my website. I only send emails once a week. Rest assured that your email will not be sold. Links to my email and websites are on the show notes. My guest today is the result of me discovering a book that, in my opinion, every church member should read. I have had wonderful opportunities to speak to some great authors who have written important messages for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and this book joins that list of must-reads. The book is You're Receiving Revelation, Now Act on It by Lauren Dalton. President Nelson has stressed that in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. Lauren has done an excellent job in pointing out that we, as Elder Bednar describes, are living in Revelation. The problem, as Dalton points out, is we receive an impression and then dismiss it. During this episode, Dalton and I discuss the importance of acting on the first impression and not listening to the second impression that comes from the adversary. The message in this episode is important, and I hope you will share this episode with others and then purchase the book. A link to the book is in the notes. And now, here's Lauren. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be on your podcast and visit with you. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you because I have right in front of me. I wish you could see my setup here. <laughs> I've got a mini iPad that's got your book on it. I've got my laptop that's running our podcast, and I've got a another device over here that takes notes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an array of uh, electronic equipment. But... Um, I've really have wanted to talk to you because um, of your book. And uh, by the way, when did it come out? It just was uh, the release date was May 9th of oh, May 9th. 2023, so just a month ago. Okay. And I think I ran across it with Cedar Fort, who's also my publisher. But it, anyway, I I saw the title, and uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it just um, drew me in. And so I really was really hoping that I would be able to have the opportunity to talk to you because I think your message is very important. And uh, I think it ties in with everything that President Nelson has been asking us to do. And I have a gut feeling that most people aren't doing. 
because as I give devotionals throughout the country on the importance of studying the scriptures and using the gospel library and receiving personal revelation, I'm under the impression that most do not feel that they they are experiencing that. And uh, I guess I should let the audience know your book is You Are Receiving Revelation, Now Act On It. So we'll get into that a little bit later, but first of all, just about you. Uh, you live here in Utah. Uh, what do you do for a living, or are you retired? I have a, a an app uh, that I've created. It's called What's Free, spelled with a U, W H U T S free. Um, but uh, people can install it for free, and then they can go get all kinds of things for free, no purchase necessary. And, oh. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, now you, you got my curious. <laughs> is it for is it for an iPad or a phone or? Uh, you can get it on your iPad. You can get it on your on your you can, on Android, iPhone, however you want to. You know, however it's easiest for you. And then once you have it, you can go to all these places and redeem all kinds of items for free. Or you could. All, there's also some online offers that you can get for free. Some of the online offers require a postage, um, but. Uh, but that's not unlike, you know, if you're going to go get your free burger, you have to spend money on your gas to go get it. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're okay in letting someone, but we oh. just let everybody know if it, if it does require postage, we put it right there that that one does. And some, okay. and some do. Now, now, how do you spell it? W-H-U-T-S-F-R-E-E. W-H-U. Oh, I see it's right here. Yes, what's free. Yeah, people say, "Did you do? Did you spell it that way to be cool?" And I said, "I'd like to think that, but really, I spelled it that way because the other one was taken." So. Oh. <laughs> okay, it says free stuff, food, and coupons. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna put on Git, and it's it wants me to click on the side here, and I'll have to take a look at it. So, how did you get involved with that app? Well, I had spent a good deal of my career at a company in California. Uh, I, I, most of my life has been in California. I was born and raised in Southern California. Most of our married life was there. And I, I uh, spent 25 years with a company called the Penny Saver that was uh, very well known. Oh, in California. yes. Yes, I'm it familiar was, with uh, it. Started as a sales trainee and worked my way up to become the president of Northern California Penny Saver and president of their uh, internet division and and then later the executive VP of sales and marketing for the whole state and uh, and anyway I uh, I created a thing in that in the penny saver called the free page where we would give something free away every week a different item was given away free one week it could be a candle the next week it could be a burger and uh, that became the best read page in the book people just loved that page. And so I suggested to our parent company that we do it as an app nationwide. And and the CEO of my parent company says, Lauren, we tell most of the presidents of our companies that they need to think outside the box. But with you, we just want you to know where the box is. You know, you are so far. <laughs> he said, no, we're not going to do an app. Just focus on your penny saver. Go back and focus on that. Well, you know. Curtain down, curtain up. I left the company after a number of years. I went on a mission, served as a mission president in Brazil. When I came back, I decided it was still a good idea. So I decided to do it on my own. And that's what What's Free is all about. Okay. Well, now, are you the developer or did you hire somebody to develop it? 
I, I, I designed it, but we actually had a professional developer do it, and he did a, an outstanding job. Okay. Um, he's just a, a genius at that kind of stuff. Well, no, now how does somebody make money on an app that's offered for free? <laughs> it's a great question. Actually, I don't. I, there's people can't give me money even if they wanted to on this uh, product. It's uh, I'm just I'm, I'm paying some payroll. I, I pay some salaries, but uh, there's no money that's coming in. Um, hopefully, down the a couple of years from now, what I'm hoping is that we'll have so many users on the app that we'll have uh, offers on the app that are not free. Maybe it's a buy one, get one or something. And if those businesses want to be on the app, we're going to say, well, you have to pay a nominal amount. because. But as long as people are offering something for free, I'm going to let that business put, place their offer at no cost. Okay. Well, good luck on, on the app. <laughs> Thank you. Now, what? of course, you worked for the Penny Saver. Did, what, did you work any other place beside the Penny Saver? Yeah, I... Uh, after my mission, actually, it started a little bit right before my mission. Um, I had a, a nephew that was a pharmacist, and he wanted to start his own pharmacy, but he didn't have the money, and he didn't have the business background. So I became the financial partner and the business partner. I, I, I uh, you know, paid all the fees. I paid the lease. I paid his salary. I bought the inventory, and we started a pharmacy. Um, and uh, and we had we ran that pharmacy for a few years. I. I uh, I left after uh, about a year and a half after I got back from my mission, I left. And, uh, and since then, and we, we, at that point we'd opened up like five or six locations and we're doing pretty well. But uh, since then they've, uh, they've struggled a little bit, ended up closing their doors, but I did do that for a while. And then now the, the what's free. So that's what I'm doing. Now. Yeah. Well, it's hard for, I would think independent pharmacies to succeed in today's market because you got uh, Walgreens and, um, all the other big places, and I would think it'd be very difficult to compete. Although yeah, we were, I, I drive through Provo and I see several pharmacies that are independent, and they've evidently been around forever. Yeah, and we we actually were doing pretty well. We uh, when I left, we our last year was um, our last full year before I left was about thirty million dollars in revenue, so it was doing well. Um, uh, and, and again, to me, it wasn't pharmacy that I was into. I just am into business. I I, I graduated from the Harvard Business School, so I really loved business and, and um, just loved taking on a new industry and seeing how we could do with it. Okay. So I guess we could say one of your occupations, you were a drug pusher. <laughs> well, no, let's not say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now, family-wise... Uh, uh, you're married. I know that. How many children do you have? Four children. And uh, one of the reasons we moved to Utah after our mission to Brazil was because all four of our kids had come to BYU. And then after graduating, they decided to stay in Utah. So, and Annette, my wife, was born and raised in Brigham City, and her parents were still in Brigham City. So we decided to come to Utah to be close to our kids and her parents. Well, we have something in common. I was born and raised in Southern California in the uh, San Gabriel Valley. And, so was I. Okay, and lived in most of San those Gabriel cities. <laughs> I was. I grew up in Glendora. Yeah, well, we uh, after we were married, we attended the Glendora Ward. 
Um, the one, the building was right across from Citrus College. Citrus College. Citrus College. That was my ward. I was in the Glendora Third Ward on the Oak oh. Bank, in the Oak Bank building. Right okay. All right. Well, we got a lot in common there. <laughs> and then, of course, I was in Alhambra for a while, and actually, I grew up in Rosemead. Uh, but before it was Rosemead, it was South San Gabriel. Yeah. And then that <laughs> gradually became Rosemead. So, wow. all right. Well, uh, you served a mission, I guess, in uh, Brazil, yes. and uh, then you got to go back. Yes, I uh, did. I loved it. Well, what's it like to get a call to be a mission president? Uh, it was uh, it really uh, was amazing. Um, I loved my mission as a young man. Um, in fact, while I was serving as a young man, they made the change from two years to 18 months. Um, but fortunately, since I had wanted to go on a mission from the, I, I'm number seven out of seven boys. There's 11 kids in our family, and I'm number nine out of the 11 kids and the, and the last of the boys. All my older brothers had served missions. And uh, so I couldn't wait to go. I, I even wrote a letter to President Kimball asking him if he'd let me, it, it, could I start my mission at 18? and Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go right after I graduated high school. I got a letter back from, I'm sure, the secretary of a secretary or something that said, we appreciate your letter, but, you know, we, you'll start at 19. And it's, um, it's, and it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never let 18-year-olds go on missions. <laughs> As it turned out, I uh, entered the MTC a week before I turned 19, and then a week later I turned 19, and a week later my, my older twin brother started his mission. And... and uh, um, so, uh, but the, it's a good thing I started when I did because in April, 15 months after I started my mission, that April conference of 1982, the prophet made an announcement they were changing missions times for young men from two years to 18 months. But fortunately, anybody who had been on their mission for over a year could choose 18 months, two years, or any time in between. Anybody that had been on for less than a year, theirs automatically got changed to 18 months. So I got to choose. And I, have, of course, chose to stay the whole time, the whole two years. And fortunately, in fact, I got to extend and I served just under 27 months and, and just loved Brazil. I didn't even want to, I never wanted to leave to come home. It was just home to me. So when I got the mission call, I was told that it would be Portuguese speaking. But then when I got the official call, it was to the Interlagos mission. When I was a young man, Interlagos was an area in my young man's mission. And uh, so literally, I was not only going back to the country, I was going back to a portion of the mission that I served in as a young man. Wow. To preside over. It was just wonderful. My wife and I were able to attend the uh, ceilings of two grandchildren of people that I baptized and the sealing of a daughter of somebody who I baptized who had been remarried and got sealed, and what special experiences those were as well. So it was just my, my I, I, I love to tell the Brazilians that my tongue wasn't Brazilian, but my heart was. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Brazil is a big country. It's huge. And uh, so what part of Brazil could people identify with? Now, I've been in Sao Paulo, and I've been in Rio. I think Rio is a beautiful city. 
Um, I, I've only spent uh, a day in Rio and my, my whole life was coming back from our mission as mission president. Um, but uh, my mission, I served as a young man in the Sao Paulo South Mission and then as a mission president in the Sao Paulo Interlagos Mission. Okay, down in Sao Paulo. All right. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, you are receiving revelation. Act, now act on it. And um, I've got a copy here in front of me. And uh, your whole premise is basically what Elder Bednar has talked about. Elder Bednar says that we live in revelation. Assuming, of course, that we are doing our best to follow the commandments, keeping our covenants, and just doing our best, as he put it, being a good boy or a good girl. That's right. That's <laughs> and, how he says um, it. And so... We're living in Revelation, and he says what we should be concerned about is when we feel that we're not living in Revelation, what has caused that. And um, in chapter 1, uh, you said the chapter is, Why don't I get promptings from the Holy Ghost? And you begin to talk about that people are receiving, and you, the, the reader is receiving Revelation. They just don't know it. Exactly, exactly. Now, how did how did you get started on this topic about um, living in Revelation? Actually, it it started. So I had served for eight and a half years as a counselor in the California Sacramento Mission Presidency, and um, I, with three different mission presidents, I, I loved it, learned so much from them. But I, I noticed missionaries there, although I didn't, you know, do their interviews. That was, of course, with the mission president. But every now and then I'd hear about missionaries feeling like they weren't getting revelation. And that's when it first hit me. But it hit me the hardest when I went to Brazil as a mission president. Because I told the missionaries in my very first meeting with them, I told them that I wanted them to follow what I called Plan C. And I said, every missionary has a Plan A, and they have a Plan B in case Plan A falls through, Right. So every missionary has, okay, we got to make our plans and we also need to have a backup plan. And I said, I want you to follow plan C. And plan C is the celestial plan. What does God want you to do? That's what you need to focus on. Now, you still need to have a plan A and plan B. But as soon as God tells you what to do, as soon as you get that prompting, you stop what you're doing. I don't care how important you think it is. And you go follow that prompting from God. And I was really pleased with that talk until afterwards. I had missionary after missionary coming up to me, scheduling appointments, and with tears in their eyes, they'd say, President, I don't think I've ever received a prompting. And then they'd say, you know, they wondered if maybe they never had been forgiven for previous sins, and that's why they weren't getting them. And, and it, it just hit me so strong that these wonderful, worthy young men and young women needed to understand that they had been getting revelation and didn't know it. And it was my responsibility to teach that to them. And so I I pulled all these things together that I just learned over the years, and some of, some by trial and error, and some from things that I'd read and learned from my own mother. And, and uh, I started teaching them. After teaching them, they were, they were excited. They went out and started teaching the members, and members would say, well, why doesn't your mission president teach us this? So then I went to the next round of state conferences, and I taught that same thing at the state conferences. Since coming home from my mission, I got called into the Utah Orem Mission Presidency, 
And um, and that has 97 stakes in it, I believe. So so I was speaking at state conferences every every weekend, and and some of the times I would speak on that as well. And um, and then it was really at the LDS Business College, which is now Ensign College. I gave a devotional there on this topic, and and after then was really pushed by a number of people saying this just isn't taught in the church, and and members of the church really want to hear it. You need to write a book on it. And, I didn't consider myself to be an author, but I, but I agreed that the topic needed to be taught, so that's why I wrote the book. Well, I find a lot of people that write these kind of books, myself included, um, I don't consider myself an author, but yet I have a published book, and I'm working on a second one. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know if we have to be Ernest Hemingway to actually write a book or not. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's been so... The biggest... The biggest reward I've had in teaching this principle or these principles has been hearing from people who have acted on it, have have put that into practice. And then they call me or they write me and they say, this is what I did and this is what happened. And that's, oh, I, I can't tell you how yes. exciting that is to hear. Yes, absolutely. Now, in your book, you keep talking about Bing, B-I-N-G. <laughs> Right. And when I was reading the book, I'm going, what's Bing? What's Bing? Well, gradually, <laughs> gradually, you share what that means. Why don't you share with us? What is Bing? <laughs> Thank you for asking. So to me, it's it's a lot of times we have an idea that just pops in our head and, and, and you know, pops in like a light bulb just goes on. Bing, you know, like the light bulb just went on. And, and Unfortunately, we have trained ourselves to believe that when we have those being moments, when a, the light bulb goes on in our mind, we believe that's us. We believe that it's our own thought. And I have learned over the years to train myself to not give me the credit for what more often than not is really the Holy Ghost. It's really God speaking to me through the Holy Ghost. And so I've just trained myself to believe that any being moment is from God and I need to stop what I'm doing and act on it. Because when I think it's my idea, no matter how good the idea is, I'm not in a hurry to act on it. I, I don't I don't have that much confidence in myself. So I'll, I'll, I can talk myself out of it. I can put it off. But when I believe it's from God, I will stop what I'm doing and I'll act right now. Well, let's. I'm looking at the, uh, let's see, section one is the first being. And let's talk, because I think this is really important. There is a second being. Yes. yes. What is that second being? Well, it's interesting because um, Joseph Smith was the first one to teach about listening and acting on the first promptings that come. Elder Rasband has taught it and quoted Joseph Smith since then in General Conference more recently. Um, and what I try to help people understand is, Joseph and Elder Rasband and others, they wouldn't talk about the first prompting if there was no second prompting. They would just say, follow your promptings. But the reason that we're taught to act on the first prompting is because they know that the adversary, Satan, is going to immediately try to talk us out of acting on that first prompting. So when we get that first being, that's the Holy Ghost. Now, when Satan is the first voice, when he acts as the first voice, he's so easy to recognize because he's trying to talk us into doing something that we know is wrong. So he's super easy to recognize. But where he's the most dangerous is when he is simply 
trying to use logic to talk us out of acting on that first being that first one that we got from the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost tells us, for example, that we should go talk to somebody. We should invite our friend to church, for example. Being, you're talking to your friend, you're having a good time. Being, I should invite him to church this Sunday. I should invite him to our activity this Friday night. And immediately you get this another one that goes, Bing, no, if I invite him, he's going to think I've just been pretending to be his friend so I could convert him. I better not do that. I don't want to ruin our friendship. And then we listen to that and we don't do it because it makes sense that, yeah, yeah, don't hurt. Don't take a risk of ruining your friendship. Just keep being a good friend. And, and yet if we stop to think about it, if somebody invited us to their church, a friend of ours invited us to, would we quit, quit being their friend over it? Of course not. But the Satan's logic makes so much sense at the time that it comes that more often than not, we listen to it. You know, I, I uh, use an example in the book about a husband and wife having a warm discussion. And then the, the, and the, the wife finally gets up and just decides to leave the room because she doesn't want the spirit to get any worse. And then the husband gets a bing that goes, bing, I should apologize. Then he gets another one, bing. No, she started it. <laughs> and he listens to the second one. What a dope. So <laughs> we just we if we could start recognizing that second being, that second voice when it comes and realize, because most of the time the Holy Ghost is going to ask us to do things many times that that are awkward to do. It, it's going to be taking us out of our comfort zone. Satan's second voice will come and tell us not to do it. And we're so anxious not to do it because it would take us out of our comfort zone. We will most often, if we don't train ourselves, we'll listen to that second voice and be able to relax and say, okay, I don't have to do this hard thing. Yes. Uh, I, I, I like what you said in the book, and I like the examples of you gave where people second-guess that first voice. And um, I think it's important to, to be aware of it. Now, um, <clears throat> you have the second being, and then uh, section three is The Adventure Begins. And yeah. what I like about your book, you have got a lot of examples, live, real examples, of where people followed that first prompting and, of course, where they didn't and, and what happens. And I think the biggest thing about Revelation is... We, we've got to have faith, and we. I'm trying to figure how to, to how to voice this. That that quite often, and, I, and you just alluded to it, that it just doesn't make sense. It's not logical. My wife and I've recently had an experience where, you know, as we tell people, they go, "That just doesn't seem logical. Why are you doing that? Uh, we're, <laughs> we're getting ready to build up a home up in North Ogden." I didn't even know there was a North Ogden, <laughs> and yet we're building yeah, we a North. <laughs> we're, we're building a North Ogden, and we had a deep spiritual experience, and uh, and um, it, it's just we just have to learn to listen to that that first voice. It, it is so important, and quite often we just we we just ignore it. And don't realize that it's the, the Spirit is speaking to us. If we're really living, as Elder Bednar um, has said, then we're, we are living in Revelation. 
Um, so you've got 11 chapters here, and I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask if you would share a few of those stories. I, I'd be happy to. I could share some either from the book or I could share ones that got cut out of the book. I actually, I had way more stories than this, and, and my publisher told me I needed to cut it out because it was way too long. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed to make the book uh, a page count that they could feel comfortable publishing. <laughs> yes, you know, um, publishers, people don't know that's never produced a book with a, a publisher, not somebody who's self-published. But there are certain pages, amount of pages that sell. And if it falls below that magic number, it may not sell well. And if it goes above that magic number, it doesn't sell as well. <laughs> and so um, in my situation, on my second book, I, I just, I, I have seven principles I'm teaching. And um, I just didn't have enough words to, <laughs> uh, I, I talked about those seven principles and still, oh, I need more words. And so uh, that's the opposite of where you um, uh, had yeah. too many. <laughs> yeah, my, my, first, my first manuscript of this book, uh, I am maybe ashamed to admit, but I, I really put my heart and soul into it, and it was 400 pages, and uh, yeah, and that wasn't going to make it. So the, the challenge they gave me was to get it down to 150. Eventually, they they were okay at 200, and so <laughs> there's a whole lot of stories that are not in the book that that are precious to me. So. Yeah, well, <clears throat> they've been working with me to get mine to about 200, and uh, I'm actually able to do it. I just had to All sit right. and. Had to, had to sit and start <laughs> rethinking the whole thing. <clears throat> so for those that don't know, publishing a book is not just sitting down at a typewriter and uh, typing. <laughs> That's right. It's a lot of work. And, and then, of course, we have our experiences with the editors. Once we do give our final draft, they have all sorts of fun with us. <laughs> and so it's, 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 it's a very educational experience. All right. Well, give us, give us some examples, either in the book or out of the book. Okay. I'll give you one. Um, well, I'll give you one that's not in the book that I, I love um, from Elder Mercedes, a great Brazilian missionary of ours. He was in an area that was a very rich area. We didn't have very many rich areas in our mission. We were kind of more of a, um, a poorer mission. He's in this one rich area where almost all of the all of the homes were behind security guard gates, and uh, the security guards would screen them out so they could really hardly make any contact. One day he says uh, they had just become so desperate. He says, finally there came a day where we were so utterly desperate for the Lord's help that we prayed for him. We prayed to him with great fervor. We explained to him what had been happening to us, and we continued. We had been continued to be diligent and work hard. And we said, "Please give us the whispering of your spirit, as President Dalton has taught us." And we promise that we will act as soon as it comes. And then he said, "We felt the spirit guide us to a dead end street, where there was only a huge wall and a few trees. We almost turned around and left." When we saw that there was nothing there, but the spirit compelled us to continue on. So we kept going on to the end of the street. And we finally got to where there was an empty shopping cart under a tree. The shopping cart caught our attention. So we walked over to it. 
when we got to the cart, we found a door behind the tree and we clapped. This time when we announced we are missionaries, the reception that we got was much different than what they'd got at the guard gated areas. A large family came out. They gathered around us and they said, we have been waiting for you. We have wanted to talk to you, but we didn't know where to find you. So we prayed to God, asking him to send the missionaries to our home. And we have been waiting for you to come. Where is your church? That Sunday, they were all at church. And although they were not members and had never visited a church before, the members of the Lord welcomed them very quickly and they made friends very easily. I'm so grateful that we sought the Lord and followed his prompting, even when it made no sense to go down a dead-end street that had no homes. Hmm. Now, you use the expression clapped, and I think that needs a little bit of explanation. So in, in Brazil, I guess you don't knock on doors. In Brazil, you, um, you are more polite than that. You don't even step on foot onto the property until you have permission to do so. You don't go onto the property and knock on a door. You stay outside of the property and clap for permission to come into the property and then go up to the door. So you clap. And then what typically happens is people, not only at the house you're wanting to go to, but neighbors look to see who's clapping. Okay, they don't need me. They're looking for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting um, uh, way of... Uh... Uh, of life it's amazing cultures how different they are and how people handle things but this is one story just one of hundreds and hundreds of stories of you know just acting you know the, because you know when we talk about how a lot of times things don't make sense you know satan uses great logic to talk us out of doing these things like even these missionaries they started going down the street they saw that there were no homes on the street and it was a dead end. And what thought came into their mind? They didn't even recognize it, but it was a second being that was telling them, this is a waste of our time. We shouldn't do this. But fortunately, they pressed on and kept going. See, because God, and I say this in the book as well, God doesn't need logic. I mean, how much sense did it make to build a, an ark on dry ground? I mean, <laughs> that made no sense at all. God doesn't need logic because he knows how the stories end. So he tells us to do things that oftentimes won't make sense. Um, one, of, one of my favorite stories about the of one that doesn't make sense, I do share in the book. Uh, mind if I share that? Yes. So uh, Sister Gunnarsson, great American missionary from our mission, she she and her companion were scheduled to go a certain way on their uh, uh, their appointments that day. And then she got this bing. She got this thought that just popped into her mind. No, we needed to go see Kelvin. But immediately after she had that thought, she got another thought, another that second bing that said, well, no, Kelvin is at school right now. And we already have plans that we're going somewhere else in another part of our area. But then she remembered, no, president said, always act on the prompting, even if it doesn't make sense. Now, Kelvin was a teenage boy that, that was already a member of the church, but he was a little less active. And the sisters were helping him come back into activity. 
So she told her companion, she said, we need to go see Kelvin. And her companion said, we already have plans somewhere else. And Kelvin's at school. Now, this is another point to share. This is a lot of times Satan will use other people, even good people, well-intentioned people to be his second voice. He used her, her companion who didn't mean any harm by it, but she thought those same thoughts. But Sister Gunnison was determined, nope, I'm going to follow this prompting. So she said, we're going to Kelvin's. They went, they stopped their plans, went to Kelvin's, clapped. Kelvin's mom answers the door. They said, is Kelvin home? Kelvin's mom says, no, uh, he's at school. <laughs> her companion, I like to say her companion, said what any good companion would say, told you so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Sister Gunnarsson knew she was there for a reason. So she looked around. She saw a little boy, four years old, maybe, sitting on the curb. She went up to him and she said, do you know a family we could take to our church? And he points to a house that's two doors away from Kelvin's house. She goes, what's their name? The little boy shrugs his shoulders. Do you know them? He shakes his head, but he's still pointing at this house. They go up to the house and they clap. A woman answers, I first heard about this story three weeks later when Sister Gunnison wrote me an email the day after this family was baptized and said, President, I'm so grateful that you taught us to act on promptings even when it doesn't make sense. Because God knew that that woman needed her, needed us at that door right then. But he also knew that we had no idea where she lived. So he told us to go to Kelvin's house and he did the rest. She told me later that at the baptism, it was that woman, her husband, and their two children that were baptismal age that all got baptized. And at the baptism, the woman bore her testimony. And she said she's so grateful that the sister missionaries called her by name because she never opens the door to strangers. After the meeting, Sister Gunnarsson went up and said, we didn't call you by name. She said, yes, you did. And Sister Gunnarsson said, we didn't even know your name. We couldn't have called you by name. And the woman got a little emotional and she said I distinctly heard a woman's voice call me by my first name and that's the only reason I opened the door to you and then Sister Gunnarsson wanted to find that little boy and thank him she asked everybody in the neighborhood nobody had ever heard of this little boy nobody could find the boy she never knew where he came from but that little boy was pointing exactly where they needed to go where the miracle happened I mean, it's, we just need to re remember this is God's work. He's going to do it. It's just a matter of whether we want to be a part of it or not. And if we do, he'll put us to good use. Yes, it, it is so important that we, we listen to that voice. And I, I, what I like about the story is the companion, a, a wonderful woman, was acting as that second prompting and that second voice and and i think we often i think often that is the case we we have a prompting to do something and other people will go that doesn't make sense or are you crazy home values exactly. are down why are you selling your home <laughs> uh, or or why are you buying this home when the interest rates are so high and and you know it happens to missionaries all the time. If you think about how many times the missionaries work with somebody and that person's getting ready to get baptized, and then they tell a friend or a family member they're going to get baptized. And what do those well-intentioned family members tell them? 
oh, you don't want to become a Mormon. You don't, you know, they do bad. They, they tell them all these things that mess them up. They act as Satan's second voice. Not that they're trying to be bad. They're they're just <laughs> acting and end up acting as that second voice. And so that does happen a lot. And many times it can be our own family members. It can be our best friends that are well-intentioned. They want to give us good advice. But the problem is they aren't part of the revelation, that personal revelation that we received. And we have to remember that. Stick with the first prompting. You'll always do well. Joseph Smith said that if you follow the first prompting, you'll get it right nine out of 10 times. In other words, there's safety in following that first prompting. Absolutely. And the people who are discouraging someone, Absolutely. I think they really think Absolutely. they're being helpful. They're, they're doing it with good intentions. Yeah. They really are. You know, the other thing I had to tell my yes. missionaries, yeah. and I found out afterwards was a bad analogy, is I, I was a huge Paul Harvey fan growing up. I mean, I, 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 I would take my lunch break so I could listen to Paul Harvey news and comment, and then I'd listen to the rest of the story at the end of the day. Um, and I used to tell the missionaries, I said, look, just because you think it didn't work out, do not judge it on that. You you need to do it anyway. I, I said, you know, I, I talked to him about Paul Harvey, you know, the rest of the story and found out that none of them had ever heard of Paul Harvey. But, but uh, I said, we're not always going to get to see how the story ends. We just have to trust that we did what God wanted us to do. Because the missionaries would tell me, time and again, they would feel prompted to clap at a door or prompted to stop somebody at the street. And it didn't go well. They would always say, well, it didn't work out. And I'd say, you can't say it didn't work out. You can say that didn't work out like I thought it would. That's okay to say that, but don't say it didn't work out because you did what God wanted. So if you did what God wanted, it worked out. You did your part. That's what God wanted. So you know, I said, I gave him an extreme example. I said, God wanted Abinadi to go back and talk to King Noah. That didn't work out for Abinadi, you could say. <laughs> but it did. Abinadi was, ended up being a hugely successful missionary because he converted Alma, who converted hundreds and thousands of people. And then his son and what his son ended up doing, all because of Abinadi all because of one man who probably died thinking he was a failure. So I said, don't ever say it didn't work out. Do not say that. Because when you say that, you're saying you're you're mocking God's prompting. Instead, you can say it didn't work out like I thought it would. So they would say, but president, I clapped and nobody answered the door. Or I clapped and they came out and they were really rude to me and they chased me off. I said, well, that rude person is going to go to work tomorrow. And they're going to run into a, a former, a fellow employee, and they're going to talk about those weird missionaries that came that they chased off. And that fellow employee is going to be a member of the church, and they're going to have a great conversation. And that man's going to maybe end up joining the church all because you clapped. Well, two things. First of all, for the audience that doesn't know, because they are not old enough, uh, Paul Harvey had a wonderful thing called. He had always in with that's the rest of the story. And he'd give, it was only about five minutes or something, but he'd give this wonderful story. And then in the end, he would identify who was in that story. And it might have been Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Edison. And, uh, and he'd say, and that's the rest of the story. 
Um, secondly, yes, what, what you've just said is, is extremely important. Uh, in fact, you have a story in the book, if memory serves me right, of a man that just did that. He was very rude to the missionaries, and it wasn't until later that they, they learned that um, after he basically, I guess he even swore at them, he went back and sat in the chair and kind of thought, I shouldn't have done that to them. But uh, anyway, it ends out he becomes a member of the church. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, there's a lot of great stories like that. One that I think President Monson shared, I think that's in the book, if I recall correctly, um, about uh, him bringing a man back into activity that tra- treated him poorly, and then later on finds out that man came back into full activity and served for years. Um, I share one story in the book about a woman who refused to answer the door. She she peeked out and. The missionaries were there, and so she wouldn't answer the door. The missionaries thought, well, you know, I guess that wasn't a prompting. But that woman, as the story goes on, you find out that woman got baptized later, all because the missionaries clapped at that door. And she she had been praying that God would send angels to her door. And then as soon as she finished that prayer, the missionaries were clapping at her door. And she didn't answer it because she was afraid. But but then she kept having that thought for weeks that said, those were my angels. Those were my angels. So she finally stops a different set of missionaries a couple months later and says, what do I need to do to join your church? Mm. <laughs> All because the missionaries clapped at the door and felt like it must not have been a prompting. I said, you can't do that. You can't say that didn't work out or you can't say it wasn't a prompting. Just shrug your shoulders, smile, and know you did what God wanted you to do and move on. Yes. Well, the message of your book is very powerful. Uh, you give wonderful examples. And as I shared with you during our pre-podcast uh, here, um, that uh, I bought the book for two grandsons who are going on missions here in August. And uh, hopefully I'm going to check with them maybe in a week if they're actually reading the book. But um, <laughs> you just never know. We're dealing with teenagers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but um, we do have a grandson who's on a mission in Oklahoma, and um, I send him five points of the book because maybe some people don't know, but when you're serving a mission, uh, they don't want you just reading any books. They, they cut, cut, you know, Jesus the Christ. They've got a, like an approved reading list. And um, don't be offended, but I'm sure your book is not on that a pre-approved reading list. <laughs> so I don't even think they've heard of the book yet. So. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, anyway, I summarized what you taught about down to five points, I think it was. Anyway, it was interesting. I learned that um, he wrote back to me and he said, after learning what you sent me, and he said, I've got to know the name of the book. And so I sent him the name of the book. But he said, shortly thereafter, I had a Bing, and I didn't use Bing with him. But I had that first uh, thought, and we followed up on it, and it's marvelous what happened. And so I I really hope the listeners understand, and if anybody is struggling um, with this issue, that they'll buy the book, or if they know people who are struggling with it. And even if you're not struggling with Revelation and understand all of this, it's a wonderful read. It really is. It just it flows, and um, it's 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 just a w- wonderful book. 
Well, um, this podcast is always really about not people's books, but studying the scriptures. So how, how do you approach the scriptures and how do you study them? Well, it depends on why why I'm studying them on a daily basis. I I I read more than I study because there's a difference between reading and studying, uh, a, a big difference. But uh, you you are studying still when you're just reading the scriptures because you are learning. But I like to read the scriptures because my main purpose in reading the scriptures is to be filled with the Spirit and give let me have the Spirit in a stronger way that day which will make me more susceptible to any of the promptings that the Heavenly Father wants to send my way. So that's my main purpose is to, to fill up, you know, to let the scriptures act as my spiritual gas station. Fill me up so that I can go today and, and do a lot more good. Now, then there are times like uh, where as a mission president, I'm going to teach a certain principle at the next zone conference. In that case, I'm going to study the scriptures by a topic. And I'm so I'm going to be taking from all the scriptures and from other things, and I'm studying this topic so that I could teach the principle better to the missionaries. Um, so I I study differently depending on on why I'm preparing for something, but otherwise I'm mostly my goal is to fill myself up with the, the spirit. And it's of course it can be from any of the scriptures, but my favorite of course is the Book of Mormon, and and I'll I'll even. You know, I walk this mountain that I live on. I live here at the top of Suncrest in Draper. And, and so I walk uh, five days a week. I'll walk up the mountain. It's about 3.8 miles up to my house, and it's mostly uphill. And I'll listen to I'll listen to the Book of Mormon in Portuguese as I'm walking up that mountain, waving to people just because I it just, you know, it's makes the, the walk a much better walk, filling myself up with words from the Book of Mormon. You pointed out that there's a difference between reading and studying, which is something I mention all the time when I give devotionals, that um, there's nothing wrong with reading. It, it's good. <laughs> I would never discourage anybody from just picking up a, the scriptures and reading them. Uh, and you, we see that all the time in the temple in the celestial room. But there is a big difference in studying because we need to have start with prayer and we need to... Uh, be able to record what what we're learning and the impressions what, that we're getting, and so and you mentioned the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> um, yes, we should be reading the Book of Mormon daily. I was at a uh, at a ward uh, where they were having a special um, Sunday school class, and it was a lot of young people in there. And they said, "Well, we have the Book of Mormon, and we've got the Come Follow Me, and what should we be studying?" And the advice given by the bishop I disagreed with, but I didn't say anything, is that, oh, we should focus on come follow me. And um, I said, no, that's not right. We should be reading both. And exactly. I've, that's the right answer. I've even asked a few state presidents what the, how they would have answered it, and they just said, well, we would have said you need to study both. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you don't ever... Yes, we need to follow. We need to study. Come follow me. Absolutely, but never at the sake of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon needs to be a daily occurrence. Yes. In fact, you know, can I share one more thing with you about that? Yes. I had a, one of the things I hated when I served as mission president is I would go to places where people would say, "Well, you know, you should study the Book of Mormon, even if it's just a verse a day. You should you should still read at least a verse a day. You know, because that way you're in the habit of reading." 
And, and I would say, you know, I, I, I didn't want to offend anybody, but I'd say, I believe that teaching is of the devil. I said, I think Satan feels like, okay, I can't convince them to not study the Book of Mormon. So instead, I'll try to convince them to just read a verse a day. But I said, let's think about that. That's like saying, you should always brush your teeth, even if it's just one tooth a day. Even if it's just one tooth. <laughs> I said, there's... There's no way that one verse is going to be enough for us when we're combating the evil that's about us all day long, every day. We need more than a verse. So I, I said, we need to study. We need to read. And and whether even if we're just reading, you mentioned about when we study, we should pray. Even if we're just reading, we should still start with a prayer because the Lord will give us such insights even when we're just reading the scriptures. Yes. Um, yeah, we... I, I've had people come to me and say, well, you say that the, that we've got to study each day and that reading is okay, but we've got to study. And I do that, and I say that because of what Elder Bednar and a lot of our apostles have talked about, that uh, I think it's Elder Bednar that says that by studying the Scriptures, not just taking a sip of water, but by drinking deeply, by studying daily, uh, that is the prerequisite to revelation. Exactly. Yeah, and and, and we like, and we need to do that. You can't you can't feast when we're supposed to feast upon the words of Christ. You can't feast when you're just doing a, a, a little bit of reading. You really right. Can't. Right. And the other question people bring up to me is, well, how long should I study? And I said, uh, in fact, I just got done uh, doing some further research. I cannot, I can only find two instances where how long we should study is even brought up. They're both by President Benson, who is quoting, uh, see, Joseph F. Smith and uh, Myron G. Romney. Um, <clears throat> Myron G. Romney said that he thought 30 minutes was a good idea. And uh, then... Later, uh, President Benson quotes from Joseph, I think it's F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith said that he thinks that maybe 10 minutes is good. And, and, and my point is there's nothing by our, our apostles and our prophets that said, you must study 30 minutes a day. Right. Um, I've pointed out many times with people, I've interviewed a nursing mother who said, and she's got all these children she's watching. She said, the only time I can study is when I'm nursing. And so it's not how much time we are in the Scriptures necessarily, but how deep we go into them. And I think a lot of it has to do with our attitude, that we really want to know more. And the Lord reveals to us that that we... We all have different circumstances in life. I'm retired. If I want to study for three hours, I can study for three hours. But when I was supporting a family, I didn't have three hours. Yeah. Uh, maybe all I had was 15 minutes. And so the Lord understands all of this. But it's the desire, it's what's really in our heart exactly. that decides if this is study or just reading. And, and I would tell uh, my missionaries, they would say, well, President, I'm really worried because after the mission, I'm not going to, you know, can I still study as long as I've been studying on my mission? And I said, no, realistically, no. 
on your mission, we assign you this time where you have that much time. And it's a lot of time you have to study your scriptures every day personally and then as a companionship. But after your mission, you're not going to have time. However, if you've trained yourself to make sure you do it every single day on the mission so that it has become a habit, after your mission, you will study. It won't be nearly as much time as you do now, but you want it to be a habit to do it every day because what you don't want, if you go home from your mission and you have that, that habit where you say, well, today I don't have time because of this. Guess what? Tomorrow you won't have time because of that. And before you know it, the only time you're cracking open your scriptures is at church on Sunday. You can't do that. You have to be in the habit of studying daily the scriptures. That's the only thing that's going to be protecting you. I was at a wedding this last week and at the reception. And, of course, I've got my missionary badge on. And a young man came up to me and he said, where are you serving? And I told him and he said, oh, I just got off my mission a few months ago. And he said, I'm really struggling. And I had a deep sense that he wasn't studying the scriptures daily. And I didn't want to offend him, and I wasn't feel prompted to say, sit down and let me teach you something. <laughs> but if that's something I really wanted to ask the man, but um, or the, this young man, but I just didn't feel it was... Um, and it wasn't a prompting I had as we're talking about where it said, talk to him about reading the scriptures. But I just sensed that this was a young man that is struggling, trying to get back into normal life. And I don't think the scriptures are as important as they were when he was on a mission. It's, I, I think that's one of the safest places to go with any return missionary is that's the, too often that's the first thing to to go. Yeah. It's the habit of studying every day, and and uh, they do not realize, you know, when we learned from in Alma about small and simple things bringing great things to pass. When you give up that habit, it, there's so many great things that stop happening in your life, and and the adversary we're letting that the the nose of the camel into our tent by stopping that, and it's just going to get worse. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've come here to in the end. I'm sorry. I, I talked uh, too much. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sorry, too, because actually if we were in another setting, I think we would uh, be talking a lot more about these experiences. And um, uh, I just, again, I hope the, the message of your book gets out, and I hope the people invite you to give devotionals and things on this subject, because I think the people that encourage you to write the book are absolutely right. I don't think people understand revelation. And uh, like I said, I, I maybe it was in our pre-podcast uh, here that uh, I mentioned I've been studying revelation for a lot of years because it's something that's always fascinated me. And I've had some wonderful experiences with it, and I've had experiences where um, they weren't good. And when I put all this together... Um, I realize how important that daily personal revelation is in our lives. And we've just got to have faith, and we need to move forward. Well, as I said, we're at the end here, and as always, I ask my guests to bear their testimony. Would you mind doing that? I'd love to. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I, the testimony, I, I think about when I 
started to gain my testimony. And I can't ever picture and remember a time where I haven't had one. I was raised in a very strong, active family, ninth out of 11 kids. And my mom just raised me with a testimony that I always had. So it was just, it wasn't a matter of if I had one, it was just that it kept getting stronger. I remember when I was 13 years old, we had a family home evening lesson. And my mom was on the Book of Mormon and she said, uh, how would you feel? I had never read the Book of Mormon. I'd been a member of my whole life, 13 years old. She goes, how would you, she's telling us, all of us kids, she goes, how would you feel if in the hereafter, Joseph Smith comes up to you and he, with excitement in his eyes, he says, how did you like the Book of Mormon? I gave my life for that book. Tell me how you, how you feel about the Book of Mormon. She goes, how are you going to feel if you have to say to him, I never got around to reading it. That night, I decided to start reading the Book of Mormon. And three days later, as a 13-year-old boy, I finished. As I read and read and read. I pushed myself through some of those Second Nephi chapters that I read. <laughs> and I just had what I thought was the strongest testimony. I didn't need to ask Heavenly Father, if it was true, because it was just burning inside of me as I read that book. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read it since then. I know the most I've ever read it in one year was 14 times, um, but I've read it many, many times. And I and every time I read the Book of Mormon, I get something more out of it. It's like it's like God put something in it that he hadn't put in it before. So that he snuck something else in there. But that book has helped shape who I am and continues to do so. I have such a strong testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith and what a beyond wonderful man he was. He was a, a truly a prophet of God from a very young age and gave so much and sacrificed so much to bring the gospel to the earth again. I'm so grateful for President Nelson. I'm amazed at what he does at the age he is, that he is so, so, busy in doing the Lord's and being on the Lord's errand. Um, he, he is teaching the importance of personal revelation in such a strong way. And he teaches us how to even dial in our celestial radio and get tighter and tighter and, um, and understanding the promptings that come. But what a, he is leading the world for anybody that will follow him, he is the prophet, not of this church, but for the world. And mostly, I'm grateful for my Savior. I'll never understand what he did with the atonement. I'll never fully understand it. But I'm so grateful for what he did. I know that in a way I can't really understand that he did it for me personally as his little brother taking care of Lauren because he knew I couldn't do it on my own. I can't wait for the day that I can bathe his feet with my tears and thank him for how he changed who I am. I'm grateful for the plan of happiness and how I have the opportunity to live forever with my mom and my dad and my brothers and sisters and my wife and my kids and because as Elder Holland has taught it wouldn't be heaven without them I love this gospel 
I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.